I don't know where you are this morning in life. I don't know where you are emotionally. I don't know where you are psychologically. I don't know where it is that you do have hope. And I don't know where it is that you have more despair. For most of us, there's likely some of both that exists in our lives. Some of us have some areas in which we are so confident that things will turn for good here. And we even believe that'll happen likely shortly from now. Others, things in our life we look at and say, I don't know that it is ever going to get better at all. Most of us don't exclusively live in one of those two areas for the entirety of our lives. Usually it's some sort of a mix. You may be looking at work right now and you may say, it just seems as though it is utterly hopeless. It will never get better. Others of you may be saying right now, I I think it's going to turn around very, very quickly once we get customers back. But you know, at home, I just don't know that it's ever going to turn around. That relationship with the spouse or a child or a parent, whatever it may be, you may think, I I don't know that this is ever going to to get to a place where it's ever going to work. Some of you may be saying, no, I see things turning around right now, and I've got more glimmers of hope right there. Where I really struggle, David, is I just don't know that I'm going to continue on in this thing called faith. I'm trying the best that I know how to put one foot in front of the other. I'm reading the Bible. I'm praying. I'm showing up. I, I just don't know that it's ever going to get better for me, though, spiritually. Most of us live with some level of despair and some level of hope in our lives. Now, what happens to most of us when our faith gets really, really difficult? And here's what I mean by faith getting really, really difficult. When we do the best that we can to live out the principles as we see being revealed in the Bible, we hear somebody talk, We believe it's good teaching. This is the way that we ought to live. And so we try to live in that manner. And what do we get in return? Not what we had hoped for. So you say, I'm going to run my company by all of the principles that are there according to the scriptures. And so you do your best to run your company or your firm or whatever it may be with the, with the most biblical principles possible. You seek counsel from others that have been doing this. You, you seek counsel from pastors and so, and you put these principles into practice and your business still fails. You do everything you can within your marriage. Husbands are doing the best they can to lay their lives down, to, to sacrifice, to love unconditionally. And it just doesn't produce the results you want. She's doing everything in to follow, to honor, respect. You, you work with your kids. You, every relationship, you're trying so hard to do what you believe the scriptures are calling you to do, but it's not producing the result that you want deep down inside. What, what do we do with that? I will tell you, most of us, most of us have a tendency. We are at least tempted to walk away. Most of us are tempted at some point in our spiritual pilgrimage to walk away. Maybe not forever walk away from the faith, but walk away from trying to live out God's way. We'll just walk away from that and do whatever it is that we seem to think is the best thing. Now, this book, 1 Peter, which we're going to be looking at for the next 13 weeks, that's a lie. It's going to be divided up. We're going to look at it for the next six or seven weeks, and then we're taking a break for Christmas 
uh, uh, and then we'll come back to it in the beginning of the year, but it'll be 13 total weeks in there. First Peter is written to us who need hope. If you want to put a subtitle to the book, it could be simply hope for the suffering. If you have your Bibles, look with me to First Peter, we're going to look at just the first two verses. If you have it in paragraph form, it'll be just really that opening paragraph that you have. In honor of God's word, would you stand as we read just the first couple of verses here from First uh, Peter? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God uh, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You may be seated. Now, anytime we start a book, and we've talked about this many times in the past, there's always three things we need to identify. Whenever you're doing your own personal study of it or or, uh, any kind of a a series, we want to look at three things to begin with, three questions to answer, if you will, uh, before we dive into uh, the totality of the book. Who is the writer of the book? Who is the recipient of the book? And then what is the reason for the book? These three things, writer, receiver is what I typically call it, and then reason. Who is the writer of this? He tells us right here in verse 1, it is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This term apostle could also just simply mean messenger, but I think in the context, it's Peter that's trying to let us know, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, is Peter doing this the way that I would likely do this? Probably not. What I would likely do when I'm writing a letter to someone is I would want to let them know, by the way, I'm really, 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 really close to Jesus. So you really ought to listen to me. Why? Because did I mention I'm really, really close to Jesus? Now, Peter is, in fact, one of the three closest friends that Jesus had while on earth. Some say he was even the closest. I think John probably was the one that was the closest to Jesus, but Peter was a part of that inner circle of three. You also likely have three friends. You probably have tons and tons of friends that you can, even lots of folks you could call on even in hard times. But if I were to press you and to say, who do you really, really want when life gets its toughest? Who do you want by your side? You would probably think of one to three friends. Peter was one of those three for Jesus. In fact, Peter was one of those who was actually invited by Jesus on the last night Jesus was going to live physically. He, he, he's invited in to come into, and, and Peter, pray with me, man. And Peter starts out, I think, praying, going, yep, I'm, I'm going to do this. And Scripture tells us it's not long before he falls asleep. And Jesus comes back and he says, stay away, keep watching me, keep praying. So, uh, uh, and, and then they fall asleep again. And in Jesus' greatest hour, one of the only times in all the Gospels in which Jesus reaches out to his disciples and says, help, Peter falls asleep. Peter's also the same apostle who earlier that evening, just, I mean, hours before that, was the one who was sitting there at dinner, and and Jesus says, by the way, all of you are going to betray me. Just want you to know that. I don't think Jesus had a finger pointing their face and saying, you worthless scum, just want you to, 
I think he was just saying, you guys don't possess the commitment that you think you do. Peter, boldly. Ha, ha, ha. Jesus, I don't care what any of these other hacks do. I'm telling you, I will be with you. And if I got to go to fight for you, I will do that. They're going to run away. That's fine. They're losers. I'm going to be with you until the end. And Peter's the one who later on, hours, even after falling asleep, Peter's the one who finds himself denying that he even knows Jesus. Peter is an impulsive character portrayed all throughout the Gospels. But let me ask you this. Would you want someone to only characterize you based on the first 20 years of your life? Would you want someone to remember you based on what it is that you did in your most immature moments? I went to a high school reunion, and I think, I think this was my 15th. I may be wrong in that. My uh, 15th high school reunion, I was class president. I'll spare you the story as how it is to I got to be class president. It was a financial thing. It was a money-making thing. We think we could launder money and make more money that way if, if I were to cheat and, and steal. And, and that's exactly what happened. So I was voted in. So in these, uh, in these reunions, you know, you get a great chance to hang out with people that you knew formerly and that they knew you. And who I was in high school was not who I was 15 years after graduation. Because at the end of my freshman year of college, I came face to face with this man named Jesus. And he radically transformed my life. And so one of the neatest girls in our class, I was very privileged. Uh, the, the girls in our class were very godly. Um, went to a private Christian school. They were just a wonderful group. The guys, we, we, we were not. The girls were great, though. And so one of the most godly girls in this class, she's just saying, so David, how are you? How's life going? What are you doing? I said, you know, I'm actually a youth pastor. And she said, oh, <laughs> what church? I said, it's a Presbyterian church. Said, okay. Is it a liberal church? Is that <laughs> she had no idea. It, how would you like to be known for who you were? Peter is, now when he's writing this, something has happened to him. So yes, while he's this impulsive character that's full of himself, that eventually has this great fall that was one of the most gracious things that God could have done for him. Let him fall flat on his face and realize, I don't love you like I thought I would love you. Because what does Jesus say? When he's restoring him in that moment, do you remember this? Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you agape me, the highest form of love? Nope, don't agape you, but I flail you. Do you agape me? Jesus says again, nope, don't agape you, but remember, I flail you. Jesus, third time, changes and says, do you flail me? This is what I think. Other theologians would not see it this way. I think Jesus was saying, it's okay, Peter. It's okay. You will never love me like I love you. It's all right. When Peter experienced Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down upon him. And thinking back to his life, how impulsive he was, how full of himself he was, he is a humbled and changed man. And God does such a radical work in him, he's one of the leaders in the church. Jesus had actually changed his name from, P, from, uh, from uh, um, Simon to Cephas. 
which means rock. Some theologians see this, and I, I think it's there. We see a change that goes from a man who walks in the power of the flesh to a man who walks in the power of the Spirit. And what's he mean he walks in the Spirit? He's a rock. And this guy would continue to sin, by the way. Even as a growing, maturing believer, a leader in the church, Paul would have to confront him as he would confront others. That Something radical happened to this guy named Peter. And according to the book of Acts, it seems as though what happened, the Holy Spirit comes upon him in power. And listen, gives the power of Jesus to Peter to actually live out the Christian faith. Now hear this. Peter is not writing this book. He's not writing this letter to the churches. It's not circulating to a group of people because he has said, you know what? If you just would become like me, then we could really expand our brand. Our church could become great in the sight of culture and, and we could sell a whole lot and we could grow and, and numerically we could take over and we could then take over the government and then we could run things the way that we want them run. Peter is not writing from that vantage point. Peter's writing from a vantage point of, I know what it's like to not walk in power and I know what it's like to walk in power. And let me assure you of this, it's better to walk in power. Why? Because it's not really about you. It's not really about me. It's not really about us. It's about Jesus. And so what he's going to do in this book, he's going to show us that Jesus is the ultimate example of someone who came, who was an alien and a stranger, who came to earth, suffered greatly, withstood it, did everything that was right and necessary under that suffering. And now he says, Jesus is not just the model for you, he's the power. So now, you and I, although we may be tempted to walk away, what he's going to tell us here is stand firm. And you can do it. Not by yourself. Peter, I think, would say is, I know what it's like to have the best of intentions. I know what it's like to even make plans. I know what it's like to give everything that I have over for even the person of Jesus. I know what it's like to give everything that I am and everything that I have, and it's still come up short. And I also know what it's like to be empowered. Peter is the author of this book. He goes on to say, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, he mentions Several places, and these places, if we were to map it out and look at it, it would, it would comprise most of what is today modern-day Turkey. He's writing to these churches, and he says to the elect exiles. Elect, in the scriptures, could mean just simply foreknowledge, meaning that he knows beforehand what's going to happen, or it could mean that he actually causes some things to come to be in here. He says to the elect exiles, those who have been spread out. Now, what's interesting about these regions that he mentions is there's a whole bunch of Gentiles that are in this particular group here. So when he uses the term elect, 
exile, it sounds like he's speaking to a Jewish audience, but he's actually speaking primarily to a Gentile audience. And he's letting them know right off the bat, you are in. You are a part of that. You're a spiritual Israel. There's one group of people, and they're called the people of God. In the Old Testament, they were the Israelites, but it was never about ethnicity. It was about faith. In the New Testament, it's the church. It's the believers in Jesus. And again, it's never about ethnicity. You can't be born into Christianity. You can be born into a Christian home, but being born in a Christian home no more makes you a Christian than being a human sitting in a garage. It doesn't make you a car. You're still a person. So when he writes, you are the elect exiles, he is letting them know, I I want you to know you have been a part of God's plan from the very beginning to get this gospel message all over the globe. Now, in the Old Testament, oftentimes they were exiled due to their own personal sin. Peter's going to let us know in here. He is actually doing this for something much different. It's not for the punishment of the church. It is for the expansion of the gospel. So he spread them out. He takes a group of people that are spread out, and those that are part of these churches then simply go, and they live out their faith in the face of a watching world. They rely upon God for it, and God does some incredible things. He molds, he shapes, he forms, he fashions, he changes hearts. In the same way that he changed some dude's heart, In the spring of 1988, he changed hearts way back here. And he's still changing hearts. And I know that there's several of you right now who are still praying that he will change someone's heart in the life that that, that you love. I know you've been praying for years now. 15, 20 years. God, would you just change their heart? He's still in the business of changing hearts. Why hasn't he done it yet? I don't know. I wish I had a better answer for you. But he's writing to these folks and saying, God, even before the foundations of the earth had it mapped out, had it planned out in which he was going to reach into your very soul, he was going to cause your dead heart to start beating. He was going to become the object of your affections. He was going to mold and shape you into the image of his son. And he was going to use you. This is all tied up. He was going to use you for eternal purposes. This is what he's writing to this church right here, this group of people. Now, what do we know about this particular group of people? This group was experiencing regular and consistent suffering. What do I mean by suffering? I mean that financially, um, they were at a disadvantage because at times, simply because they were Christians, they had opportunities that they missed out on. Socially, oftentimes, they were ostracized simply because they were Christians. In France, we just heard, whose problem is it? Why do we have this? What about those crazy people that write storm? Whose fault is that? Evangelicals. It's been going on for a long, long time. You know what Jesus says about that? Hey, my children, don't be surprised. Don't act shocked when the world hates you. Just remember they hated me first. 
And since you're associated with me, there's going to be some just natural fallout that's going to come from it. But, but take heart. Because I've overcome the world. Peter is centering this letter in that. He's writing to churches that are being ostracized. There, there are, some are even losing their, their physical lives themselves. Writing to these churches to remind them, hey, this is not an accident. You are not an accident. God has been planning. God has been moving. He's been stirring all along and creating opportunities for you in this very moment right now. And if you will just turn uh, towards him, uh, you're going to see what some of those purposes are now. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, now listen, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. It's according to the planning of God the Father. It's in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, meaning God plans it, the Spirit then applies the work of Jesus. He's the one who, who does work to make you more like Christ. And then it says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Let me just make this very simple. I think he's talking about the two sides of the equation that are here. He is talking about in here the cleansing work of Jesus that forgives us of our sins. And he's talking about the obedience of Christians to the person of Jesus. So Jesus does the work to make us right. And then we join him as we strive. We just did a series on holiness, which we strive to say, God, make me more like Jesus. Then he says, may the grace and the peace be multiplied to you. Now, what do we need to know about this letter if it is that we're going to understand um, that which God wants us to, to see in this passage? Because what would not be helpful is for me to tell you, hey, there's a, really gr- a lot of great tips in here for, uh, for living. And there's some tips on how you can improve your family. There's some tips on business, etc. I don't think that would be particularly helpful for you. Because what I want to close our time out with, and it'll be about 10 minutes or so, I want to close our time by, by pressing in specifically on those of you who feel as though you experience suffering. What is suffering? When we think of suffering, we oftentimes think of prisoners of war. We think of those who have been captured and then they're tortured specifically because they're associated with with America. I think of a gentleman that uh, was a a teacher of mine in high school. Um, He was in uh, Vietnam. He served uh, faithfully our country there. uh, And he served, uh, he spent a little bit of time as a prisoner of war. And uh, there are certain smells that he has to this day that when he smells it, it takes him back there and, and it's horrific memories. When we think of suffering, we think of intensity. What we think of folks that um, can barely function, hardly move on, we think of extremes, don't we? But I think that would be limiting what Peter is getting at and what the scriptures um, let us know what suffering really is. Scriptures call us to, listen to this, share in the sufferings of Christ, and it's actually going to be a good thing. So what are some biblical examples of suffering? In the Scriptures, there was a woman who approached Jesus. She had enough faith to come uh, up and get close to him, and then she had heard through legend that if she could just simply touch a portion of his clothes, that his power would come to her and that she would be freed from her suffering, as the scriptures call it. She had a medical condition that not only did not get better, it actually got worse over the period of 12 years 
when she went to every doctor she knew to go to and was faithful, was reasonable, trusted the conventional wisdom of the day, did everything that she should do, and, and she got worse in the process. She had suffered. Now, why did she suffer? Well, it wasn't just the physical bleeding that was a part of it. It was the fact that it ostracized her. It made her have to be permanently on the outside of what everybody wanted to be on the inside of, and that is the church. She was cared for, but at a distance, and you couldn't come in contact with her. Because if you came in contact with her, physical contact, that would mean that you too would become ceremonially unclean, and therefore you couldn't contact anyone else. So for years... She prayed, and God kept choosing to say no. For years, she went to doctors, and doctors couldn't help. For years, she wanted someone to hug her and tell her she was okay, and nobody could. Suffering isn't just something that the enemy is attacking in an aggressive manner and and trying to impose their will upon someone so that they are shambles of who they really were. Suffering comes in many forms. How about you? What do you suffer with? Some of you may be suffering relationally. Again, as you are doing everything that you know to do, and not only is it not making things any better, it's actually making things worse in the process. You have a child yet that has just told you, would you please never again talk about spiritual things? And they may have used more colorful language to tell you that. Have you done what many folks have done over the years as they come to what they know is the place of life, the thing that is to breathe life into us, and that is to God's Word? Have you been one that has come over and over and over again to God's Word only to find that you're just not getting anything out of it? I mean, you place yourself there day after day after day. You keep coming saying, God, I'm trying. I want to hear from you. I'm reading. I'm doing everything I know you to tell me to do, but I don't sense that you're anywhere near. Psalm after Psalm, not just David, other psalmists. Where are you, Lord? Suffering may come in the form of us sensing God's absence rather than presence. Suffering may come in many different forms, but I want you to hear this. Suffering is not just simply a result of the fall, which it is. Suffering is actually something that God intends to use for good. Now, Peter's going to flesh this out as the series goes on. But I want you to wrap your minds around this concept right now. Not fully, not not, not even joyfully. He wants to wrap our minds around this. God uses suffering 
for good. I don't know that there are any uh, real human examples that we can turn to and look and see when some type of suffering in our own life at the, at the hands of someone else has maybe produced a, a tremendous amount of good on a large scale. But I, but I will say this, our country years ago um, uh, endured a great deal of suffering. And please hear me, I, I am not one who believes that America has never made a mistake. Please don't take it that way. But I love this country. And I really do believe that we live in the greatest country that has ever existed. And I believe that is because of God's grace not because of human ingenuity. But years ago, we fought in a revolution and that was to get away from what we believed was a government that was not going to let us live and worship in freedom. And so some folks made their way over here and they established some colonies. And a war was fought. And that war was eventually won by these little ragtag group of people. It wasn't long after that that there was still some bickering, complaining, et cetera, between the two. And after just being fed up, the War of 1812 began. Now, the British fleet was tied up in another part, but there came a point which they could turn their attention towards the war that was going on over here in North America. And so they began to come in and make their way, and they made a strategic decision to go through into Baltimore in the place called Fort McHenry. And believing that this would be a strategic place for them to do some significant damage and, and win this war, War of 1812, they began to focus their efforts here. Now, a week before the first bomb went off, a lawyer had made his way to the ship. There was a friend that he had, and others had asked, would you please negotiate with the British for this particular uh, uh, individual, and so he made his way on there and was able to successfully ne negotiate. But because he and his buddy had overheard the plans as to what the British were planning to do, he was required to stay. And so he went back to the boat that was his while they just guarded that boat. And beginning in the second week of September, he watched what would be a 25-hour launching, just bomb after bomb after bomb after bomb onto Fort McHenry. No cell phones, no ways to communicate with one another in there. But after 25 hours of bombing, storms were there that night. He described the scene in, in vivid terms uh, there. Early in the morning, he got a chance to look as things became a little bit clear. And looking out across at Fort McHenry, there was a flag that was raised. This giant flag, 15 stars and stripes. Indicating that we had one that we would not give in. No matter what assault, no matter what attack, we will not give in. Why? Because freedom is worth it. So Francis Scott Key, the man there to negotiate the time to get that prisoner off, pinned the words to the Star-Spangled Banner. And in 1931, we adopted it. We sing it at ballparks all over. 
the most moved and stirred I've ever been, one of the most in, in my life was in 1991, listening to Whitney Houston sing that Star Spangled Banner. Folks, can I tell you what Peter is ultimately getting at? What he's saying is, remember the words of Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. And that trouble will take on not just little minor forms, but it's going to come in significant ways. And there's going to be oftentimes some, some damage that takes place mentally, emotionally, even physically that we have. And there's going to be an assault. And that assault is going to come from the evil one. And it is going to be relentless. And it will be bomb after bomb, dart after dart, arrow after arrow, shot after shot, and he will not give up. And the reason is not because you or I are particularly impressive. The reason is simply because we bear the marks of Jesus Christ. We have been claimed by him. We have been bought at a price, and that target got even larger when we came to faith. And because the devil hates God with such an intensity, he goes after his children with great regularity. And so that assault will come. <laughs> and I don't know what the flag is that you would raise in there. I don't know what the symbol would be. I just know this, that when it finally stops and there's a moment of peace that you may have, which might only last a few hours, some sort of flag has to be raised in your mind that says we will not give in. We will not give up. Why? Because spiritual freedom is worth it. Jesus has freed us from both the power and the penalty of sin, and, and you will be attacked. But freedom is worth it. Over the next 12 weeks, we're going to flesh out what Peter means when he calls us uh, to this, but when faith gets difficult, most of us are tempted to walk away. This letter right here tells us that when faith gets difficult, we can stand firm. I close by just reading to you what's coming in chapter 5. It's the purpose of the letter, the reason. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, period. Stand firm in it, Wildwood. Let us get prepared to suffer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy that you have extended to us. Um, Lord, I pray that you um, would somehow or another, would you cause us to see all the good that could happen. But Lord, I pray um, right now, above anything else for, for all of us in this room, that whatever the case may be, whether we're in a time of real ease and peace or, or whether we're in a time of real assault, Father, um, Holy Spirit, G Jesus, would you help us to fix our gaze on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? We know that you know how to stand firm. And so we're asking that you would show us, not just your example, would you give us power? So focus us. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.